This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Genocide Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. That is Al Wilson and the Snake. You'll hear more about this shortly. I'm your host today, Jeff Bachman, a senior lecturer at the American University School for National Service. Thank you all for listening. Today, I'll be talking to Alexander Hinton about his powerful new book, It Can Happen Here, White Power and the Rising Threat of Genocide in the U.S., published by New York University Press earlier this month. Alex, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks so much for inviting me on. Thank you for joining me. Uh, can you start us off by telling our listeners a bit about yourself? Yeah, I'm a uh, professor of anthropology. Uh, there aren't a lot of anthropologists working on genocide, uh, sort of in the domain of genocide studies. There are a few out there, so I'm, I'm one of them. Um, and uh, that sort of links into my research that I did as a graduate student uh, in the 1990s in Cambodia. Uh, and I actually went in originally with a different research project, uh, but I saw what had happened and I reframed my research uh, around perpetration and trying to understand why genocide takes place uh, and also perpetrator motivations. So I wrote a book, uh, Why Did They Kill? That was my first book, the one that emerged out of my dissertation research. Um, and then, you know, and to do that, it was, you know, I knew I needed to sort of study not just comparative political violence, and there's quite a bit of bubbling up literature and anthropology at the time, but much more broadly, the, what was then becoming the field of genocide studies, it sort of trailed uh, Holocaust studies by, you know, five to 10 years in its emergence. And so I sort of caught, I wasn't, the, I wasn't at the very beginning of that. But shortly afterwards, I went to my first meeting of the uh, International Association of Genocide Scholars. Uh, so that began my path, a sort of a looking at genocide, uh, but perhaps uh, mass violence more broadly uh, from a comparative perspective. And I founded, uh, along with my uh, colleague Nella Navarro, Professor Nella Navarro, uh, and Thomas Lapointe, uh, the Center for the Study of Genocide and Human Rights at Rutgers University. Um, and I continued to go back to Cambodia and do research. Uh, and I wrote another uh, couple of books on the court, the tribunal in Cambodia, the extraordinary chambers in the courts of Cambodia. And that court uh, started up uh, in the late 2000s 
uh, first trial that got underway uh, in 2009 was the trial of Doik, the commandant of uh, S21, which is now known as the Tool Sling Museum of Genocidal Crimes. And I wrote a book uh, titled uh, Manor Monster, uh, Travel Camaro's Torture, that came out with uh, Duke. Uh, and then uh, I actually had so much material. Uh, and, uh, you know, that book was actually a bit unexpected and a bit of a turn um, because the original book I wanted was to write was that sort of looked at him, Manor Monster, and got into all sorts of different things like redaction, um, uh, sort of editing out knowledge and how this is taking place both by the, the Khmer Rouge uh, and the court itself, um, psychological assessment, but it's also part of the way we think. And that, and I sort of loop around and talk about Arendt's banality uh, of evil in terms of the banality of everyday thought. But then the book I'd originally thought I would write <clears throat> about the court uh, uh, ended up being The Justice F uh, Facade. Uh, and that book came out in 2018. Um, and then little did I know I would end up uh, testifying at that tribunal. Um, so yeah, so that, I, I guess we'll talk about my path to writing this book a little bit later, but that sort of frames my, uh, you know, my background in terms of genocide studies. Uh, and I've always, I, I'm, I guess I'm the UNESCO chair as well in genocide prevention. Uh, so I've always as well tried to, uh, you know, be an engaged scholar as much as possible. Thanks, Alex. And I know we're not here to talk about why did they kill, but a, a quick question, because um, when I was reading It Can Happen Here, I was thinking about perpetrator research. And, uh, you know, a little bit ago, I uh, interviewed uh, Shelley Anderson and Aaron Jesse about their edited volume. And actually, the interview before this I did with Tim Williams, um, that seems a little bit ahead of ahead of the time. Uh, perpetrator research still has a certain taboo to it. Was Did you sort of feel any pressures or constraints doing perpetrator research? Was there any pushback on doing that? You know, the sort of, the answer would be no in one sense. Uh, so again, you have to remember my positioning in anthropology. So I think within different disciplines, certainly a lot was being done, began to be done uh, in Holocaust studies, but it varies from discipline to discipline. Uh, and as we sort of moved away from the you know, you can't understand, you can't explain a motif that was there for a while, kind of blocking out some of engagement with this topic. Uh, anyways, that so that was in some domains and stopped some people from sort of looking at it. We've moved far past that now. Um, but I think because I was an anthropologist and, you know, on the, as an anthropologist, you don't necessarily begin with the question, you find the question when you're in the in the place that you're doing your research um and that you know with my like the book cover to manor monster that came out very directly uh i said oh that's that's it that's the book cover uh it sort of messaged the whole you know what the book was about um so so that's a long way of saying uh i i didn't really feel constrained but it may be because i was working in a sort of different silo at the time um and as an anthropologist, you know, I took up the question that everyone was asking in Cambodia, uh, you know, why did Khmer, why did Khmer, why did Cambodians kill Cambodians? Why is the Cambodian word, Khmer is the Cambodian word for Cambodians. Um, and that, you know, that's the question I took up. But yeah, there wasn't, there was mainly, you know, a lot of the literature on the Holocaust at the time. 
and it's great to see the new emerging field uh, of perpetrator research uh, that's coming out. I actually have another book that I'm co-writing with uh, Tony Robbins, um, who's worked in Argentina, and we have a co-written book that uh, is under contract with the press and will probably be out in a year, year and a half on perpetrators. So there will be in sort of our fieldwork experience at the same time in these two different contexts and conversation. So the, it will loop around uh, again when that, when that book comes out uh, a little bit further down the road. You, you stay very busy over there, Alex. Uh, and maybe I'll have, uh, we can work it out that I have you and um, Tony Robbins on when that book comes out. Um, but to your, your current book, it can happen here. Uh, it is written in a, a unique style. And um, I was thinking it'd be great for you know, the audience or our listeners to get an excerpt from it so they can get a feel for uh, the style of, of the book. And I also understand that you have a excerpt of um, Donald Trump um, you know, re reciting the snake that you want to share with us. Yeah, no, thanks so much. I, I think that's a nice way. It's hard to beat Al Wilson. Uh, I think it's not possible to beat Al Wilson's The Snake uh, with your intro, but uh, I will I will do my best. And then I guess I'll sort of uh, read. Um, actually, it's the very beginning of the book. Um, and this, uh, people who are listening in can get a sense for the way it's written. Um, and I guess maybe afterwards we could talk about the literary strategies and choices uh, that I made. And that's a longer sort of discussion. Uh, but I think, as you said, just be be good to begin. So I will Read from the beginning of the book. The first chapter, the introduction is called The Snake. Uh, the last chapter is called uh, The Bird. Um, and, you know, they're sort of set as bookends. And that speaks uh, to Toni Morrison's Nobel Prize address. Uh, I don't know if we'll have time to get into that. But, you know, the book is bookended uh, with The Snake and The Bird. So this is The Snake. Um, and I will cut in and play The Snake. Uh, being read by the in the original uh, after a little bit, and I would say my reading will be about you know like two minutes. We'll cut through the excerpt about three, so it'll be maybe five six minutes total. Uh, if you bear, if you bear with me, uh, and I should note as well that the cover of the book uh, features uh, above in large uh, block white letters. It says it can happen here, uh, and it has a, a snake rising up, mouth agape. Um, at the top. So that motif uh, is very strong in the, in the text. Introduction, the snake. I want to read you something. Presidential candidate Donald Trump stands before a raucous audience at a campaign rally at the Youngstown Airport in Vienna, Ohio. It is March 14th, 2016, the day before the state's Republican primary. Trump had arrived on his personal jet featuring gold-plated seatbelts and Rolls-Royce engines. It is painted in red, white, and blue and emblazoned with Trump's name, which is also printed in thick, bold letters on each of the ramp stairs he descended before walking to the nearby podium, while the crowd cheered and recorded his entrance on their phones. Some hold Make American Great Again signs. Trump invokes the slogan several times during his Vienna stump speech, homing in on the country's alleged dismal state of affairs, job losses, bad deals, manufacturing decline, and decrepit infrastructure. We're becoming third world, Trump laments. The solution is to vote him into office. 
we're going to do things the country isn't used to doing, Trump explains. It's called, we're going to win, win. To underscore the point, Trump offers a story. I want to read you this because I love it, Trump tells the crowd. The story, he continues, is based on a 1986 song by Al Wilson, an African-American soul singer. Reading from a sheet, Trump begins. We're going to make this good. But we talk about terror, and we talk about terrorism. And we talk about, remember this, this is for what I'm going to read. We talk about the wrong people coming into our country, right? And we can't allow it. And I love you. Look at this crowd. I love you. I mean, it's amazing. Okay, you ready? And this is called the snake. A snake. Oh, snake. Right? On our way to work one morning, down the path along the lake, a tender-hearted woman saw a poor, half-frozen snake. Her pretty colored skin had been all frosted with the dew. Oh, well, she cried. I'll take you in. And I'll take care of you. Take me in, O oh tender woman. Take me in, for heaven's sake. Take me in, O oh tender woman. Sighed the broken snake. She wrapped him up all cozy in a curvature of silk and then laid him by the fireside with honey and some milk. Now she hurried home from work that night. As soon as she arrived, she found that pretty snake she'd taken in had been revived. She was happy. Take me in, oh tender woman. Take me in for heaven's sake. Take me in, oh tender woman, sighed the broken snake. Now she clutched him to her bosom. You're so beautiful, she cried. But if I hadn't brought you in by now, heavens, you might have died. Now she stroked his pretty skin and then she kissed him and held him tight. But instead of saying thank you, that snake gave her a vicious bite. Take me in, oh tender woman, take me in, for heaven's sake. Take me in, oh tender woman, sighed that vicious snake. I saved you, cried the woman, and you've bit me, heavens why? You know your bite is poisonous. And now I'm going to die. Oh, shut up, silly woman, said the reptile with a grin. You knew damn well I was a snake before you took me in. Right? Right? It's well, not the first. <laughs> yeah, it's hard, hard to hard to continue after that. Um, <laughs> that sort of that's yeah. So that's the yeah. Wow, I, I think that sums it up. Um, you know, so this is the beginning, beginning of the book. I relate this, and it's a theme that that goes uh, that sort of flows throughout. But it also speaks to the reason that I, uh, you know, I, when I first began to think about writing this uh, this book and writing about what was going on, uh, because as you can already see at the time, uh, then candidate Trump was using this language of 
uh, borders, invasion, a threatening not us that's contaminating uh, that's contaminating uh, the body politic. Uh, and with this audience, I don't really need to say much more than that, but that's obviously uh, the sort of thing that we study in genocide studies and in the study of uh, atrocity crimes, mass atrocity. Uh, and, you know, so symbolically, you have the snake representing uh, the non-white outsider. And again, he would frame this by saying, think immigration. He told this actually from, I believe the first time was in early January 2016. What we just heard was in March 2016, right as Stephen Miller had joined uh, had joined him. I'm not saying that there's a direct connection between the two as if he said, oh, do this, uh, you know, Donald Trump. But the, but the idea that his messaging and what would become policy under the Trump administration was there very early on already at this point. Um, and maybe that's something we speak to later. Um, and I'll just sort of, you know, in terms of representation, snake is the threatening black and brown, non-white other. Uh, or, of course, you have the anti-Semitic uh, association of Jews with snakes and a lot of uh, white power extremist literature. Um, and then the tenderhearted woman is, you know, a symbol of uh, Lady Liberty, Columbia, the U.S. body politic, a symbol of innocence, vulnerability. Uh, and if you get into the gendering issue, right, uh, a woman who needs to be protected by the virile white extremist uh, males. Um, and Trump obviously messaged on uh, hypermasculine, uh, you know, rhetorics that play directly to hypermasculine aspects of white power uh, extremism. Um, but, you know, to sort of just wrap this up, uh, so this is, you know, the very first, uh, first couple of pages, kicks the book off. But what was going on at the same time on the very day that he was giving that March 14th, 2016 uh, speech in Vienna, Ohio, I was on the opposite side of the world testifying uh, on the charge of genocide at the Khmer Rouge uh, tribunal. Uh, and, you know, the he was talking about the snake and there was, uh, you know, we were talking at the tribunal uh, different times evidence came up, different things. Um, one of them was the crocodile, the Vietnamese crocodile who was invading, uh, sending its surrogates in to destroy the body politic, uh, as well as all sorts of language of, you know, enemies growing from within, which is also language we got during the Trump administration, enemies of the people, uh, demonization of the media. So I, you know, early on 2016, I, you know, I saw this, Hitler was being compared to, Trump was being compared to Hitler. Uh, I'm not one to go for one-to-one -one historical uh, comparisons. I think of it more that they're echoes and resonances and patterns, and you see those and they always reshape in different ways, but you can see enough of those patterns that you can potentially uh, predict, or at least, you know, when the situation uh, is becoming, uh, to use the sort of heat map metaphor, a uh, hot situation, coding red. Um, and maybe we'll talk about it, but certainly by 2020, we were in that place uh, in the U.S. So this is the sort of moment, the sort of thinking I was doing originally. And then after Charlottesville, maybe we'll talk about that as well, uh, was sort of the moment where I said, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to write about this. Thanks, Alex. There's, there's so much. And I, I want to, there's things that you just said that I want to, that I want to get to, but I also want to kind of keep things in a sort of linear way so that we're not moving uh, back and forth. Um, but uh, you, 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 you mentioned, sorry. Oh, you, you know, I forgot to answer the original question. If I could just do that briefly in like sure, 30 seconds. Right. So the book 
is, and you know, I, I'm not writing it in a expository traditional, quote unquote, traditional academic style where I'm sort of telling. Instead, I'm draw on literary uh, strategies. Uh, you know, so in creative writing, uh, you know, you show, don't tell. In academia, we tell, don't show. That's an overstatement in both both respects, but it gets to a difference. And then in creative nonfiction, you show and you tell some. Uh, and so this is written in the uh, in terms of sort of creative nonfiction style uh, of trying to show. And by show, I mean, uh, you know, having a journey, right, it involves a journey. So it follows a progression from uh, this beginning moment with the snake uh, to the end. It actually ends. In July 2020, though, I was able to write about the Capitol insurrection in the preface, uh, and it follows a journey through. Uh, it's a journey and part of my teaching about this. Uh, it very much involves, you know, in academia, we talk about voice. Uh, you know, it's all this book very much in terms of voice. It has the voice of students. It has my voice, apparently, in addition. It has Donald Trump, uh, Trump's voice as well. Thinks about audience, but it also has setting. So it's taking place, parts of it are, take place literally in the classroom. Uh, it involves dialogue uh, back and forth with students, uh, images. So in this sense, uh, yeah, it, it's written in this style uh, intentionally uh, in part, uh, you know, my, as I mentioned before, my commitment to engage scholarship uh, and part of that engagement in public uh, anthropology is what we call an anthropology is to write in a way where I try not to use the jargon that often uh, saltifies academic writing and write in a way that's accessible to a broader audience. And I was uh, pleased that actually it got a Kirkus review, which is what you get with a lot of, uh, yeah, a Kirkus starred review, which is norm, you know, saying it's well-written. But Kirkus is usually, you know, what you get if you have a novel, work of creative nonfiction. Uh, so I, that was a nice, uh, a lot of people on, some people in academia have no idea what Kirkus is, but it's uh, anyway, <laughs> it was nice, nice to get. So, so yeah. sorry to, to interrupt before. I just wanted to address your question about the literary strategies. And you, you got a sense from that from my reading. Absolutely. And, and no worries at all. And, and it's, it's a very accessible book. I think uh, it could easily have been published with a, uh, you know, commercial press and, um, and, you know, so hopefully uh, non-academics and non-students will also uh, find their way to your book. Uh, you know, a moment ago, you did say uh, you don't uh, treat things as, as one-to-one. And I'm thinking, you know, you mentioned how Trump uh, had been compared to Hitler and you talked about your own uh, research and your, and your participation in, in the ECCC. Um, for those who think about, you know, the Holocaust and the Cambodian genocide, um, they might, I don't know, would they, do you think they would find your title as being pr- provocative by using the term genocide? Uh, though, as you demonstrate in your book, uh, I don't think it is provocative because you show that it is possible and that there's a, you know, that the United States is found on a, uh, a history of genocide um, and perhaps even ongoing. Um, so, and there are also some who, you know, would argue that, uh, it can happen here, but they may be referring to white genocide rather than um, genocide against minority populations. Um, so can you tell your tell our listeners how you came to this title? Um, and of course, com- you know, feel free to comment on anything that I also included there. 
Wow, great question. And uh, it's a bit of a curveball question, or maybe it, and my answer curves, um, because the truth is uh, the press selected the subtitle. Um, it was linked to my original subtitle. Uh, the title I wanted, it can happen here, was, you know, anyways, that was the one that I insisted upon. Um, but they, they came up, they wanted to emphasize genocide. That was not in the original title. Um, it would be more broadly, anyways, the, you know, the threat, anyways, it was about the threat. I can't even tell you the truth. I can't even remember offhand what the original title was at this point, um, but I was okay with it. And I actually liked the title, uh, their suggested subtitle, which reworked my original title. Um, but I think the key phrase, uh, so, you know, uh, and in one sense, I want to hit hard on the idea that genocide, the sort of most extreme position on the spectrum of mass violence or atrocity crimes that uh, we as scholars study, uh, that that potential is there and it, it could happen. Um, but the subtitle is The Rising Threat of Genocide. So it's speaking very directly to this idea that, you know, we have the spectrum of potential violence that can manifest in different forms. You can't just study genocide alone. Um, but if you look at it in terms of mass violence, right, often, and this sort of gets into the intentionalist uh, structuralist debate uh, and other things about, you know, is there a straight line from Trump to genocide uh, versus is there a twisted path that could lead from uh, the Trump and his administration to genocide or other atrocity crimes? Uh, and that's more along the lines of what I'm, I'm talking about. So we're, we're jumping ahead a little bit. Um, you know, so one of the major motifs of the book um, so, you know, if you think, I sometimes think of it as there are four stepping stones. One stepping stone is Trump who recurs. Second is the field of genocide studies. Third is the way it's written with the literary strategies. And the fourth is uh, a lessons motif. So that lessons motif uh, has one aspect, which is critical pedagogy. Uh, and at the beginning and critical thinking, um, and I draw, I talk briefly about Adorno, uh, Education After Auschwitz, uh, and talk about how I mobilize critical pedagogy uh, in the classroom. So that's one of the senses of the lessons motif. Uh, the second sense, um, which has a couple of different manifestations, uh, is this idea of lessons learned, which speaks directly to your, your question. Uh, and again, there, you know, when people say, oh, Trump is Hitler, I, you know, anyways, I, Trump, to me, is not an ideologue. He's more of a demagogue and a populist, and he doesn't have the sort of ideology that's formulated, uh, as you find, say, in Mein Kampf or anyways, as we find with the Khmer Rouge or other places. But that doesn't at all mean that he's not someone who could oversee an administration in which atrocity crimes could take place. So it, again, it's the echoes uh, and sort of drawing on our knowledge about risk assessment uh, that I can speak to if you would like after this um, and how I drew in my classrooms on those. So we have a critical pedagogy. Uh, the first chapter uh, is titled Charlottesville Teaching, and it talks about my experience trying to figure out how to teach about Charlottesville um, with pres then President Trump making the comment, uh, you know, they're fine people on both sides and how my students and I critically unpack that, look at the longer history of white power 
extremism, systemic um, white power, what's now being talked about as structural racism that wasn't being used in popular discourse at the time, and understand the different groups that were involved, but most especially as well, sort of going back and, you know, as an exercise in critical thinking, understanding that his that Trump's statement, they're finding people on both sides or races what's actually going on, that it was, the rally was unite the right. It wasn't heritage and history, it was unite the right. And the idea was to bring together uh, the far hard right and the alt-right, the alt, what's called the alt-light pulled out. Um, so that's one, you know, that's one bucket of uh, sort of lessons in the classroom. There's another bucket that's linked to uh, a, another teaching I taught after Tree of Life. And actually I conclude the book with planning for a uh, George Floyd structural racism teaching that I actually did go on and hold. Uh, and then I actually, this isn't in the book, but I held a capital insurrection teaching uh, uh, as well um, after the insurrection that drew on some of these themes. But the lessons learned, um, you know, we have critical pedagogy, we have sort of learning these echoes with the past. But the third sense that's very important, and this arises in the uh, concluding chapter on the bird, where I talk about Toni Morrison's uh, Nobel Prize address that I talked about before, it takes up the notion of, of moral compass, and uh, it actually takes up the notion of grace, which in academia, you know, it's like for many people, it's in shockwaves through to be talking about grace. Um, but that chapter is set at Chautauqua, which is a uh, a institution of learning that's religiously uh, has a sort of historically uh, comes out of religious Sunday school teaching and different things. It takes place every summer. It's going on uh, right now as we're in the summer of uh, 2021. Um, and I spent a week there uh, while they, the theme was grace. And that was at the time when the El Paso uh, shooting took place, uh, the massacre at the, at the Walmart, uh, Nuangia, who is the head of the the, the most senior living uh, Khmer Rouge at the time, whose trial I attended, who I actually had a face-off with at the very end of it. Um, he died like the day after, and Toni Morrison died. So you had this very strange conjunction, and meanwhile you were having these discussions of grace. But that sort of loops around. There's a much broader story that I get into with that, but in terms of lessons... Uh, I take up the notion of moral compass, which is something that we talk about to some extent. It's rarely defined uh, and it often kind of floats. So I take it up and I reframe the book in terms of moral compass. And by moral compass, uh, and I'll end uh, you know, this, this, uh, after this um, with this question about lessons, um, but I think of moral compass, and this is one of the, you know, the takeaway of the book is it can happen here to get away from the denial that we have linked to that question, whether it comes through uh, the myth of American exceptionalism, the immediate response to say, this is not us, um, or the denial that comes by saying, oh, yeah, you know, it's, it's those haters, it's those racists, uh, it's nothing to do with me, it's those bad apples. Um, and that might be worth, if you want to talk more about that, we can. But we have that myth of denial. So the but moral compass uh, is centered uh, in the book around the notion of awareness, is the center rose, the awareness of grace, and that definition comes out of different lectures that were being held there uh, at the time. But it involves being able to look around and understand a context, being able to look at 
and understand the perspective of other people, even those with whom you very much disagree, even those, as I learned in my interviewing and meetings with perpetrators uh, in Cambodia, including tortures, uh, people involved in uh, mass executions, uh, to see them and as a human being, understand them and understand their story and what that story is. So that's something in terms of far-right extremists uh, that's informed, and that's the basis of the bird, of dialogue. To look beneath, to continue this, the seeing metaphor, and by that I mean to critically unpack uh, surface-level things that are taking place and understand that, and that links back into uh, the critical pedagogy I mentioned, and to be able to look back, as you stressed in your question, and understand the echoes and connections with the past, how they inform the present, bring us to where we are, but also lay the pathway of what stretches uh, ahead of us. And that's the last of the four points is looking ahead uh, and, and sort of loops back to uh, risk assessment, but also us as human beings navigating morally contentious, treacherous, difficult, fraught situations as we had during the Trump administration, but we have all the time in our lives and having moral compass to be able to navigate our path. And then the last thing I'll just say is, you know, I link in moral compass and moral imagination, uh, which I think of as thinking about and all these different senses I just articulated, which enables you to then think beyond, to reimagine. Uh, and so I take up all the moral compass that all, all comes in this last chapter um, on grace. So I've talked about the snake, I guess, Charlottesville teaching uh, and the chapter on grace so far. We've covered a lot of ground. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Thanks, Alex. And you're reading my mind. I was going to follow up since you mentioned moral compass. I was going to ask you uh, about moral imagination, but uh, you covered that a little there. But um, maybe it'll come up a little more here. If we stay on the teaching for a moment, uh, you know, I was really inspired by your book to uh, think about, you know, over the summer to think about my my fall classes and and, and from forward from there, um, and the type of methods I use in the classroom. Um, and I, you know, you're a distinguished professor of anthropology at Rutgers University. You've been doing this for for a good period of time. Did you learn something about your your teaching as well, just as you're trying to lead your students? Um, was were teaching something you commonly used before? Uh, yeah, I guess yeah, that's the question. Um, you know, how did where did this take your teaching from where it was before? Yeah, no, that's a great, great question. Um, so I had never had a teach done a teaching before. The center uh, for the study of genocide and human rights, my colleague uh, Nella Navarro, Professor Navarro, has uh, held. We've had teachings linked to issues but these haven't been said in the classroom. It's been more student organized discussions uh, and have, you know, we have uh, the students sometimes will put together readings about topics that are in the news. So we've had some of those in the past, but I never in my own uh, class had had a uh, teaching before. So that definitely was a learning experience. Um, I have had a history of, as many of us do, of trying to link what we're talking about into current events. I think maybe on some sense, it's safe to keep discussions in the distant past or in an abstract level, but I'm, I'm dissatisfied with that. I like to very much make connections, but to make those connections, and this again, maybe is another thing that I've navigated. I think it worked pretty well. Um, the question is, how do you avoid having devolving into a massive uh, sort of name calling 
uh, exercise where people, some people feel shut down in the classroom, like they can't say anything. Uh, you know, this speaks a little bit to some of the really uh, frustrating discussions of critical race theory and you know, discussions about the 1619 project that are going on, but that's an, that's an aside. But the sort of premise of discussion, and I talk about this when I talk about critical pedagogy um, at the beginning with Charlottesville teaching, you know, what I, I say to the students uh, at the beginning is I say, look, I don't want to know anyone's opinion and you don't want to know my opinion, right? Because that'll just lead us to argue. But what we can agree to do together is to take a journey where we critically unpack and understand what's going on. And after we do that process of analysis, and I always like the word analysis, the etymology, which is non-loosening, right? You know, we sometimes call it denaturalization, uh, something like that. But I like the metaphor of unloosening, something that's sort of closed off and unseen. And it's that sort of unloosening uh, that enables you then to, uh, you know, have opinions. And when I think of opinion, I should just say, I think of it more in the Hannah Arendt sense, uh, that's a bigger discussion, uh, you know, with the Socratic method, the internal dialogue you have with yourself before you go and engage in the public sphere with others who have their opinions and you dialogue and you're challenged. And then you go back and you have your internal two-in-one Socratic method dialogue. So that's what I mean by opinion. You know, the classroom in this sense is a public sphere and you think through issues and you discuss them and you learn in that context and you go back and think about them more. But the one thing uh, that's critical to uh, you know, to avoid or is just having some people feeling like they're silenced uh, or have these arguments that are based on very surface level understandings. Remember before I said in terms of moral compass, one of the one of the dimensions is, right, uh, thinking beneath, unpacking. Uh, and, you know, looking at history is one way to do that. Um, so, yeah, and, you know, I just say the last thing that I learned, the majority of my students um, are uh, black and brown students, uh, and I knew that they move through structures uh, of racism on a day, you know, frequently, but I was, you know, maybe not super surprised, but a little surprised by just how, in one sense, what the media and what was being blown up as these sort of extremes of the Trump administration, and certainly they were that, was just a normal part of life. You know, and now we're talking about in terms of structural racism, but it was a train through which many of the students moved on a daily basis. Uh, and if President, then President Trump was articulating this publicly, and then it would go on the news through a Twitter or what have you, and everybody would fixate on it, you know, students completely familiar to uh, the major vast majority of the students. Um, I, as a sort of side note, we take up the We Charge Genocide uh, petition, 1951, uh, where uh, Paul Robeson, uh, William Patterson, uh, other black activists who were at that time also linked into uh, the Communist Party, uh, which means they were sort of ostracized. Uh, but they had this petition they took to the UN. They say, hey, look, here's the new Genocide Convention, 48. And here we have this definition. Here's the experience of blacks in the US over the last, I can't remember if it's six, six to eight years. It fits the definition. We charge genocide. Uh, so actually, we took that up in the classrooms. Uh, and after the end of the discussion, you know, most of the students would actually would say, oh, yeah, of course, you know, 
relive this again uh, as an experience. But that's another little uh, aspect that we that we take up, and I think actually has been an erasure that exists in the field of genocide studies. Uh, but that's a conversation for another day. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Thanks, Alex. Yeah, um, yeah that, that's definitely uh, a conversation, uh, a long one uh, that probably should happen. Um, you know, I, I was curious, you, you mentioned uh, your students ma mainly, uh, mostly being uh, black and brown students. And, you know, I was curious about location and how that influenced, uh, you know, your writing of this book. Um, you know, you are in uh, New Jersey at the, at the Newark, New Jersey campus. Uh, New Jersey has the European Heritage Association, which you talk about in your book. Um, did where you live and teach um, impact your decision to write this book? Uh, would it be a different book if you had predominantly white students? Yeah, it would definitely be a different book. It would it would be the same. It would have the same title, but the classroom conversations would be different, and there would no doubt be uh, a lot more resistance and pushback uh, to some of the discussions that we were having. Uh, and it would be precisely even more so uh, that sort of classroom setting you know, where the book even, you know, I don't want to say even more, but the book is, I think, needed in some sense because it sort of makes this case against the denial that I mentioned before, linked to American exceptionalism, linked to the bad apples thesis, uh, and sort of back to the, you know, not me, the not me that we always want to sort of fall back into. It's not me, someone else. Uh, and it's also, but of course, everything we're talking about is all about differentiations uh, of us and them. So uh, there would definitely would be, it would be written differently uh, in terms of the classroom conversations. But again, going back to literary strategies, the idea was to show, uh, you know, in terms of uh, creative nonfiction, uh, to have, you know, I'm involved. It was my experience. I'm writing uh, through engagement with my students. Uh, in that sense, it's all of our experience in those classroom sessions. Parts of it, some parts of it are outside of the classroom as well, uh, like uh, the Chautauqua chapter, uh, but to, again, sort of trace this narrative forward, uh, but that narrative and the voices of the students um, would have been different. Uh, and so, um, you know, I've had the experience in the past as well of teaching in predominantly uh, white classrooms, uh, and I know there's more pushback in those contexts. Um, so, yeah, the, it would still be titled, It Can Happen Here, White Power and the Rising Threat of Genocide in the U.S., uh, but because voice, in this case, the voice of the students, uh, as well as my voice in the classroom, um, those voices would have been different. The discussions might have changed. And who knows, uh, you know, at the end of my chapter on the Tree of Life uh, teach-in, where we take uh, atrocity crimes, uh, risk assessment frameworks, and apply them to the current situation in the U.S., uh, you know, the majority of students think that it's, you know, it's sort of code red in the U.S. or uh, a moderate risk assessment threat. Uh, you know, I expect that there were, people would have thought there was less of a threat 
uh, in a different sort of classroom. Um, but I think that's precisely for that reason that the book, you know, is important, has something to say to students uh, in a spectrum of context. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I was able to teach it in my class right before it came out uh, as an ebook at the end of the semester. And I was pleased, you know, students said, oh, it's like being in a classroom. And that's exactly the goal, sort of having the setting. Uh, so someone feels like you're in a classroom, in a classroom discussion, taking on the issues of the day. And I mean, you know, how many of us still, you know, we all remember that comment. Uh, there were fine people on both sides. And, you know, how, how do we address it? You know, a lot of people still wonder about that. And, but that sort of language and the critical unpacking is something that may be linked to the moment right after Charlottesville, but it's a moment that's ahead of us for sure. Uh, and that uh, takes place all the time. And this is, you know, why the book goes back and speaks to the issue of critical thinking so much. Thanks, Alex. And I, I think I mentioned to you this previously, but I will be using uh, your book this fall in my class uh, on human rights at American University. So, um, yeah. Uh, and uh, for those who are listening or teachers, there's also a, a teaching guide uh, to accompany the book. Um, so I don't know, did you, is the teaching guide something that um, that's going to be made available to uh, anyone who purchases the book or is it going to be like online for downloading? Uh, yeah, no, it's a free uh, resource that'll be on the NYU website. Um, so free, widely available. Uh, and it, uh, you know, it was written in part linked into the conversations I had in my class, both while writing the book, but especially when I taught it at the uh, end of the semester. So the book had, it came out initially, there was sort of a pre-release release of the ebook and the formal release date uh, of the, of the uh, hardback. Um, it came out in hardback, but I should note it's a $29 hardback, so it's like a paperback. Uh, but the release of that book was January uh, 8th. And the teaching guide, uh, you know, follows about two weeks after that. Thanks, Alex. And so I, I want to take a maybe a sort of a step back, uh, sort of thinking about history and then thinking about today. And uh, you know, you read an excerpt from from this beginning of your book, and in, in the first chapter, you talk about the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville. Um, and you know, I agree the importance of that for the U.S. to come to terms with its origins, its history. And it's present, but I also wonder whether the violence uh, at Charlottesville and the killing of Heather Hare already has has it already been forgotten to some extent? Isn't that always the way it is um, for the most part? You know, I, I think that's probably more true um, if you sort of look at the history of the Trump administration. I haven't; it's actually already written into the history textbooks. Um, I have not gone and look at, at looked at one of the new history texts, but I can guarantee you. Uh, that Charlottesville will be a sort of defining moment uh, in those histories. I would be shocked if that weren't the case. So I think Charlottesville itself uh, will be uh, continue to be remembered. Uh, it's sort of a very as a significant moment uh, in U.S. history. But I think uh, Tree of Life, the Tree of Life shooting, uh, the shooting even in El Paso, those will be much more forgotten. Um, but there's something that's uh, symbolically uh, loaded in Charlottesville. And it's, you know, I think people honed in on it because it came right at the beginning of the Trump administration. It sort of condensed 
uh, concerns that people had, and it also, in a way, sort of opened up and framed the rest of his administration. So I don't know. You can maybe maybe I'm wrong, but I'm virtually I'm pretty certain that Charlottesville will be historically in the U.S. history will be a uh, you know a moment that's taught about uh, will be in the textbooks for a long time to come. And uh, but the the exercise of critical pedagogy and critically unpacking is something that uh, transcends any one event uh, and is always there. So the whatever event it is, the critical unpacking that takes place is a, is a model that you can then apply uh, in other cases. And this goes back again to the notion of moral compass that I mentioned before. Um, and so, you know, pedagogically, that's what I want Part of my goal in the book is to have people come out with, you know, sort of how I understand moral compass and perhaps uh, a way that they can understand that in their own lives uh, and sort of link to that all the sort of this underlying message that we get hit over the head with over and over again. It can happen here. Uh, and I should just note that that plays on the title of a Sinclair Lewis uh, novel that was written uh, in the mid 1930s called It Can't Happen Here. And in the 1930s, of course, for all of those who uh, study these things, Hitler had uh, just come to power uh, in, uh, in Germany, 33, and his wife actually is a journalist who interviewed uh, Hitler. Uh, but meanwhile, he looked around and he had uh, the, a sort of brown shirt equivalent in the U.S., the silver shirts, uh, and there were tens of thousands of them. Uh, there was uh, sort of religious hardcore religious uh, theological discussions. And again, radio at this time was the, was the big thing uh, that were going on, uh, which sort of links in as well now to some of the Christian, white Christian nationalist discourses. And there are also some very extreme, far hard right Christian identity groups uh, that have always been there and always been active. And this ties into the uh, sort of Christian uh, element. And at the time, uh, and this is, you know, so some people say, well, uh, you know, you're just trashing people on the far right. Well, okay, so what was Sinclair Lewis writing about? He was actually writing in part about Huey Long, who's a far left uh, figure, uh, and he was reacting to that. And I should note as well, uh, you know, I studied the Khmer Rouge, so I've, I've written all about far left extremism. Um, and I think that's important because there's this tendency at the moment for this this labeling, and it actually has a long history, uh, you can call it red baiting, whatever you want, to dismiss academics as left-wing Marxist-Leninist radicals. Uh, and it, uh, it really is a, a very shallow way of looking at pedagogy uh, and at much of what's going on in most classrooms and most of the people I know, the way they're teaching. Um, and it's just really unfortunate. But uh, anyway, anyways, in this... So at the moment we're speaking, you know, we go and sort of bring loops us back to critical race theory and all the same things going on. And, and then, you know, to make the tie back to the Frankfurt School that I mentioned before, Education After Auschwitz, Adorno, Critical Pedagogy, uh, the far hard right views the Frankfurt School as the origins or a key origin point of what's called cultural Marxism, uh, which ultimately is a... What many of them view is this diabolical plot to brainwash uh, everyone in society so that they're politically correct and ultimately bring about the demise of the white race. And here we are back at, uh, at white genocide again. Um, so there's some very odd connections, uh, especially given, you know, you read the Frankfurt School. It's all about 
critical thinking. There is certainly Marx in it, uh, and certainly many of the members of it were Jewish, and so that's how you can spin out the conspiracy theories. Uh, but they were all about critically critical thinking. Thanks, Alex. And you know what you just said there uh, about cultural Marxism uh, relates to something else I wanted to ask you about, which is. Um, can you talk about some of the common themes found in, in white power symbols, the manifestos, um, you know, this idea of, of white genocide and of replacement and, and, and so on? Yeah, no, that, that's a great question. So the idea of white genocide is familiar to some of the, uh, you know, listeners, uh, here because people have said, uh, you know, Hitler, the Nazis, uh, they're probably familiar with the eugenics movement. Um, so a lot of these disc race suicide, you had these early discourses uh, that existed um, that honed in on the idea of race disappearance, racial threat, um, uh, you know, the body politic under threat with the group that's identified with that, with that sort of national body politic, uh, you know, ultimately potentially being destroyed. But where it really uh, sort of coalesced uh, was in after the civil rights movement, where you have the white power extremism uh, shifted from a from a uh, institutional, if you want to call it, organizational apparatus that had many different forms, including the KKK, that was focused on enforcing through Jim Crow uh, and pre and before the Civil War, uh, you know, a much more a very robust form of systemic white supremacy. Uh, of enforcing, helping enforce that order, uh, often in a paramilitary fashion, to one, to take up the theme, and this is a, it would be a much bigger discussion as well, but the, to take up the discourses of victimization and grievance. So it be you flipped over from, you know, we're helping to enforce the white power, the white supremacist order, to we're under threat, uh, you know, we're besieged. Uh, you look around in the schools, you see what's happening with desegregation, uh, with what they, you know, race mixing, quote unquote, miscegenation, uh, and all these other ways that the, uh, in their view, the white race is under threat. Um, so this idea coalesced, uh, you know, around the 1970s. Uh, again, there's no one origin point, but symbolically the, the big origin point, uh, and sort of the one that's remembered uh, is a book called The Turner Diaries that was written by a physicist turned neo-Nazi, William Pierce. And The Turner Diaries, which has been uh, you know read by hundreds of thousands, uh, actually millions, I'm sure, it's available on the internet. So you, people download it. It's hard to get it as a, as a book. It sold hundreds of thousands of copies. Um, but it's, and it's been downloaded much more. It circulates all over the globe. But the core of the story, in a nutshell, uh, it begins with uh, some gun laws. You have a sort of, uh, you know, what would be called a politically correct cultural Marxist regime in power with Jews ultimately standing behind everything, manipulating everything that's always there, and much of the uh, white power extremists fantasizing. Um, and you, they start to take away guns. This guy Turner uh, isn't necessarily brought into the movement from his white power extremist views, but because of gun control. And this, by the way, is a fantasy that exists in what's now called uh, accelerationist movements. You have an event that catalyzes a much more, more a broadening uh, of the groups involved. Uh, and it very quickly, you move to a point of having race war or some apocalyptic moment. Um, so this book models that accelerationist model. And, and basically, 
and then the uh, white power revolutionaries topple the U.S. government, kill all non-whites. Uh, they purge the race traitors, quote unquote, uh, in a day called the Day of the Rope, where they hang everyone. And so, if you remember the nooses that were uh, that were out at the Capitol insurrection, a lot of people pointed to the Turner Diaries, and this is a thing everyone knows in white power circles, the Day of the Rope. Um, it's a trope. So this is, you know, this uh, story, uh, this book, sort of a narrative form, right, brought forth this idea of white genocide. Oh, and I should, I should admit, so white race under threat. And then you have paradoxically, in response to that threat, the white race going and committing race war genocide. Uh, so in the end, the entire world uh, ever, all nine, all non-whites are removed from the entire world. So in, that was in the 1970s and the 1980s. A guy named David Lane uh, codified this idea uh, in this short white uh, white power manifesto, and uh, you know I won't go into the details, but basically he took what was in that book and we're in discussions in the Turner Diaries and what were in discussions at the time, and he codified it. There's a 14 words uh, sort of saying at the end that's become this big phrase in white power circles. Um, and so sometimes you will see, for example, if you look closely, uh, you know, at rallies or sites where you have white power extremists, uh, you'll see the number 14 or 1488. Uh, and this, the 14 is the 14 words, 88 is HH, uh, Heil Hitler. Uh, so it's a white power, uh, you know, code word for this. Um, yeah, so this, anyway, so this idea of white genocide, grievance, feeling we're under assault, uh, our race, our group identity, uh, and our very survival as a racial group uh, is imperiled, is something that uh, continues into the present. Uh, white genocide was one of the most widely used white power uh, hashtags before it was banned by Facebook. Um, and the, there's a European version, and it's kind of interesting because the U.S. version is more of one, let's take up arms and fight back, which sort of is in keeping with U.S. history, fight back against the oppressive tyrants. The European version is uh, often called replacement theory, which is ultimately the two overlap, uh, and it's another iteration of white genocide. Um, and I should just add that, well, okay, people say it's the bad apples, and I mentioned the bad apples, uh, the problem of looking at far-right extremists as, as bad apples. Um so recently, Tucker Carlson went on air and defended the replacement thesis. This was about, uh, you know, in the spring. So it's on mainstream TV. It's not off, uh, you know, on the outskirts and some fringe group. It's in the airwaves. It's all around us. Thanks, Alex. And, you know, you, you, you mentioned uh, white power a number of times. Um, you've also referred to white supremacy um, you know, you talk a little bit about uh, also the use of the term uh, white nationalism. You know, this all comes up in your book and you actually discuss it with your students um, and you describe your preference for the term white power. Um, can you talk about why you chose uh, white power um, and how it can be distinguished from these other terms? Yeah. So and I should note that there was a discussion uh, in the classroom. And so it wasn't, it was my, my preference, but some of the students preferred to just use white supremacist um, as theirs. Uh, so again, it, it's, this goes back to the literary strategies, uh, to having an open openness to the discussion uh, and not foreclosing possibilities. But 
you know, if we want to sort of distinguish uh, white supremacy, uh, as it says, is that the notion that there's a white race uh, or a racially superior group, uh, and then there are those that are, uh, you know, the opposite, that are lesser. Um, and by implication, as we had in the U.S. Uh, before the Civil War and then continuing uh, with Jim Crow, uh, we continue to have a white supremacist order uh, with a privileging uh, and domination, uh, you know, of whites and U.S. society. White nationalism overlaps a lot, but it tends to potentially even though, again, it sort of circles back and takes up the resonances of white supremacy, which is what some of the students picked up, uh, to say that there's, an, that there's an alignment between whiteness and the nation. So the U.S. is a white nation. We actually got this uh, recently with the America First uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, group that was originally said to, she dis said, oh, no, that was a staffer. She disavowed it, but they were going to uh, have a party that was meant to speak to Anglo-Saxon, I believe it was Anglo-Saxon uh, tradition. So you have these code words. Some people will say Western civilization, uh, different code words for speaking about whiteness. So sometimes it's mass. The Proud Boys fall into that uh, masking move where they sort of talk about Western civilization. And they're, of course, hyper-masculine, which is sort of another link back into historic linkages of patriarchy and, and white and uh white supremacy. Um, white power links into both of those that also uh, can encompass, uh, so we got these terms alt-light uh, and alt-right at Charlottesville that everyone suddenly became familiar with. The alt-right, uh, the, alt the sort of, they actually published a manifesto and they said, here are three planks, uh, race is real. They don't like anthropologists. Um, because, of course, anthropologists, uh, as many other scholars do, but there's a long history in anthropology of saying race is a social construct. So they say race is real, white genocide's underway, plank number two. Uh, the third one, uh, you know, we have a Jewish problem, which is back to this idea of Jews are orchestrating everything uh, as a plot before. So they're overtly, uh, you know, have a very overt uh, white nationalist and even white uh, supremacist orientation. And again, these are terms and they're different sorts of groups that fit and people move and change. Uh, so we can't think of it as completely fixed, but we can sort of see these, uh, if you will go back to that bucket metaphor, the bucket of the far hard right, the bucket of the alt-right, and then the bucket of the alt-right where the Proud Boys uh, and others uh, were sometimes linked uh, where they would not be talking directly about white genocide, but they would be talking about as I mentioned before, white civilization. Um, so white power as a term doesn't speak to the nation, but it takes account of the variation within the sort of spectrum of groups I just mentioned, but also the geopolitical global connections, uh, transnational connections between and within the white power movement. Uh, and so a number of scholars, uh, some scholars have argued that this is the best term. And I, I, that's what I, I agree with them uh, because the white power movement, it has its local particularities, has local histories. And again, I mentioned replacement versus white genocide as sort of a difference, right? And there's sort of white genocide has this linkage into U.S. history. Replacement comes out of a European tradition. 
um, even as they completely overlap and everybody's reading each other and imitating each other. Uh, they're meeting, they're talking, uh, they're circulating. Uh, and so there are all of these transnational global connections with white power extremism. And if you think about Christchurch, uh, Anders Breivik in Norway, uh, you know, there's who also talked about white genocide and replacement uh, on the manifestos that they left behind, um, you know, as did the Walmart shooter, uh, as did Dylan Roof. I mean, over and over again, you find this imagery of white genocide. Um, I, I should, so that's why, you know, I use white power. Um, you know, I should add that white genocide obviously isn't the sort of idea that drives everyone all the time. It's, but it's a core discursive, as we say, in academia structure uh, that's very foregrounded, plays into the notion of grievance, uh, and that can bring to help bring together a wide of groups that have different uh, clusters, different orientations, and different beliefs. Most of them can come together on this notion that the white race is under assault and something needs to be done about it. Uh, and that's where we get really this dangerous potentiality uh, which is action needs to be taken. Uh, there are Jews uh, and other uh, black and brown groups that are threatening the existence of the white race. And, uh, you know, we got to take care of that problem. Um, I, I, well, anyways, there was a, I, at one point I talk about a neo-Nazi from the Daily Stormer who's interviewed at, um, on a Vice video, which I show in the class and discuss as part of the book. Uh, and uh, I, might just read it. Uh, so he's interviewed in the car, uh, you know, during Charlottesville. And he says, uh, we're showing to this parasitic class of anti-white vermin. This is our country. This country was built by our forefathers and sustained by us. And it's going to remain our country. Last night at the torch walk, there were hundreds of thousands, hundreds and hundreds of us. People realize they're not atomized individuals. They're part of a larger whole because we've been spreading our memes. We've been organizing on the internet. And so now they're coming out. And now, as you can see today, we were greatly outnumbered the anti-white, anti-American filth. And at some point, we will have enough power that we will clear them from the streets forever. That which is degenerate and white countries must be removed. You ain't seen nothing yet. Um, you know, so that's a sort of concrete manifestation of the idea of white genocide and this accelerationist, um, what's now called accelerationism at some time, but the idea that it's necessary because you know, this is the paradoxical thing. Because we're under threat, we're going to commit mass violence and have a race war that in the fantasy that was uh, that everyone knows about in the Turner Diaries leads to uh, the mass destruction and harm of uh, black and brown people, as well as Jews, who I should say, you know, historically, Sanders Gilman, different people uh, about Jews being coded as white or non-white, but in the imagination of uh, far-right extremists, Jews are not white. And, you know, that also speaks to, uh, you know, the excerpt that you read, um, you know, this idea that you discuss with your students that Trump um, is a symptom of white power uh, rather than its source. And, you know, in, in your book, you and uh, your discussions with your students, you emphasize the importance of seeing these current manifestations, uh, as well as the historical structures and ties that continue to foster racism, anti-Semitism, anti-Asian violence, sexism, misogyny, and, and so on. Uh, when thinking about the prospects for transitional justice and prevention uh, in the U.S., does it concern you at all when the leadership of the Democratic Party says things like, quote, we have to remember who we are, end quote, end quote, we are in the battle for the soul of this nation, end quote, 
Um, and I ask this because I, I wonder if it obscures U.S. history uh, domestically and in terms of, of U.S. foreign policy. Um, and, and relatedly, where does U.S. foreign policy and um, you know, its history of violence on uh, people of color come into play? Yeah, you know, that's, that's a great question. Uh, and they're sort of, in a way, two related questions. Um, so you pick up on, you know, a point that's at the core of the book. Um, Charlottesville uh, was depicted as the capital insurrection was uh, and other moments of extremist, far-right extremist violence uh, or extremist violence of any sort as exceptional moments uh, that are aberrations. Uh, and this is back to the idea of the bad apples, right? It's sort of parsed away, cordoned off from us uh, and any kind of implication we have uh, in activities like this by saying it's, right, it's the bad apples. Uh, you know, Trump is an aberration. Uh, he's an exceptional person. Uh, but of course, if you look at U.S. history, dating back to uh, the foundations of the country, um, you know, the 1619 Project, focuses on enslavement. Of course, we have the experience of settler colonialism and indigenous peoples as well. Um, and this history that's been going on in terms of systemic white uh, supremacy uh, continues into the present and it informs the present. And if we go back to, you know, you don't ever want to completely sort of focus too much on one event. But if you look at the civil rights movement as well, that was a moment that we're, you know, under you know, Southern Dixiecrats could say all sorts of, uh, you know, sort of overt racist things, even on the on the floors of Congress uh, prior to the civil rights movement. It begins to definitely shift. But what happened is that the rhetorics also began to shift. And we had uh, what's sometimes referred to as the Southern strategy. Um, we're, you know, we're, we're going to talk about race, but we're going to do it in language that's not obvious. People who hear it, right? And these are called racist dog whistles. We'll know what we're talking about, but we won't really be able to be accused of it because it's not going to touch us quite enough. And Trump was actually uh, a master of racist dog whistles. I have a, an essay that was published, an op-ed that was published in the online journal Sapiens uh, that was all about Trump's uh, dog whistles, political correctness, uh, and how he mobilized this uh, so, you know, the stuff that Trump did, his what was distinctive about Trump uh, is that he is extremely charismatic and some people don't like to sort of give credit to Trump uh, in any way. Uh, but I actually think he's an extremely charismatic person. And I think that's pretty obvious from his ability to rally massive numbers of people uh, and the uh, campaign rallies that if you actually listen to them, really work the crowds up. Uh, so he had a, a ability to speak to crowds and groups of people in ways that resonated and inspired them. And that is different than many of many other previous politicians. He had and he had the desire to be, you know, a demagogue. Uh, he was a populist. Uh, he was not, I would argue, an ultra nationalist of the fascist sort, which implies he did have a message of renewal, um, but he lacked in the end, uh, again, going back to some of the points I made earlier, uh, the sort of ideological rubric. Now, other people in his administration, including Stephen Miller, who, um, who later was found to have exchanged a number of, uh, of email messages, came out, the Southern Poverty Law Center found 
uh, that were given to them and uh, his sort of white power extremist views were revealed, uh, I believe this is 2018 or 2019, there were many people in his administration that were more ideological, but he himself was not really an ideologue. He was a, I think fair to say, a, an extreme narcissist. Um, to sort of loop back to, you know, who wanted attention, could work a crowd to get that attention. Uh, and as I should say, he, you know, he may be back. Uh, and that's something in terms of risk assessment we should all be worried about. But in terms of, absolutely. So in terms of your question, we should always be looking on the left, on the right, wherever for languages of exclusion. Um, and uh, absolutely, that, that's critical. That's a big problem. And that's why I said earlier, you know, I've studied far left extremism and far right extremism. Extremism of any sort uh, is have highly problematic. Um, I, I think that the Biden uh, soul of the country uh, phrase is a little bit different because he actually, with that, says we need to acknowledge the demons. I can't remember his exact phrasing, but we need to acknowledge the bad and the good. And that message is very different from the 1776 uh, Commission, the Educational uh, Report, and also the Human Rights Commission of the Trump administration, which sort of only looked at the good. So there's an acknowledgement uh, of this in that statement by Biden uh, that I think is actually helpful. Um, and now it's even, uh, for example, uh, you know, we have a, a new, uh, counterintelligence, counterterrorism, uh, strategy that's been formulated. Uh, and one of the prongs of that, uh, as exists in everything Biden, uh, is to work on sort of long-term structural racism issues, uh, educational issues, uh, that, uh, ultimately contribute to, far-right white power uh, extremism. So I, I, you know, I think Biden's a little bit different. I wouldn't quite group him in there, though I think there's certainly members of the Democratic Party, uh, though many more uh, in the GOP, uh, who play into this. Uh, you know, if you want to take your question to the extreme, uh, and I've actually do this with my students sometimes, say, well, let's listen to the State of the Union address and the way that we is formulated, uh, right? That's sort of the goal. That's the paradox. To formulate a political community, you have to speak in reductionist terms and ultimately have a formulation of a we. And that's always a dangerous, uh, a dangerous thing as well that has this sort of double side to it. Thanks, Alex. And I've already taken up a lot of your time, but I wanted to ask you one one more question to sort of um come sort of full circle with, you know, the uh, comparative genocide studies, a uh, part of your book, um, your students, uh, you know, or some of your students anyway, uh, started referring to you as Mr. Expert Witness, uh, because of your uh, <laughs> testimony in the ECC. Um, and you talked about it a little bit. Can you talk a little bit more about your participation in the ECCC? Did I give too many C's? Uh, and the similarities you found between the rise of the Khmer Rouge and, and white power in the U.S.? And, and finally, in your imaginings, what might transitional justice look like in the U.S.? Oh, wow. That's a bunch of questions. I think we're going to have to another <laughs> 45 minutes or hour uh, just to begin to take that up. I guess in part, I, you know, this is those moments, uh, one of those moments where I can say, well, read the book, right, for people who are listening in. So I, I begin uh, with my giving testimony in the court, and I mentioned the snake and the sort of borders, invaders, the not us. Uh, purity and contamination, those rhetorics. Um, and then in the book, uh, 
so after the chapter on Charlottesville Teachin, there's a chapter called The Hater. Uh, and that chapter speaks to this issue of denial, whereby calling people racist, haters, bigots, uh, whatever, supremacists, what have you, uh, we have the danger, even as it may have, there's a grain of truth to it, uh, that we turn them into bad apples that direct us away from, for example, systemic, by talking about a racist, it individualizes and it diverts us away from talking about structures of racism. So in academia, we, you know, we talk about the structure agency debate. Uh, and so this very much uh, speaks to that. So that chapter picks up sort of comparative genocide studies very directly uh, and sort of the, uh, as I mentioned before, the intentionalist structuralist debate. Um, but uh, I also talk in that chapter about Nguyen brother number two, uh, and his path to revolution. And I come up with a model, I, I don't want to go into too much detail, uh, that I use because the Khmer Rouge were also a social movement, like white power actors, uh, that sort of looks at the synergies between the two. Um, before I get to transitional justice, I might also just note that one of the things you look at is in order to implement a, you know, to have atrocity crimes, mass violence, uh, most likely you're going to have to have an administration uh, that's enabling it. And certainly, and I guess we didn't really talk about this at any point, uh, but that sort of fall 2020 high boil red alert situation in the U.S. Uh, was a moment where we had this alignment very much between far right extremists, uh, militia groups. So we have two buckets, far right extremists, and then we have the anti-government uh, militias, uh, as well as this new thing that emerged, QAnon, right? Back in Charlottesville, it barely was there. This suddenly has expanded dramatically. A massive number of people who want to stop the steal, quote unquote, uh, Christian white Christian nationalists uh, who are all mobilized together. That situation to me uh, was extremely frightening one. Uh, and <clears throat> I don't talk about this in the book, but when I present on this, you know, I often say, well, what if we hadn't had the capital insurrection? What if Trump had not been banned from Twitter? Like, what would have happened? And that's a situation where I think actually you could have had lots of violence in the streets and there were a number of really scary possibilities at that time. So in a very paradoxical way, the horrible, awful capital insurrection may have ultimately prevented something much worse uh, from taking place. Um, the last thing uh, in terms of transitional justice, uh, you know, so I have this long background uh, working in the field of transitional justice with those books on the ECC that you mentioned. Um, I actually recently wrote an op-ed, another one for Sapiens, calling for a truth commission on white supremacy. And that one's very specifically articulated to go back to 1492 versus just 1619 uh, to also take account of indigenous uh, experience settler colonialism. Um, but maybe, you know, so I was recently, uh, talking to someone else about this and we were having a conversation, uh, about, uh, New Zealand, Canada, and the U S, uh, in terms of sort of grappling with the past and, uh, New Zealand, maybe far ahead, uh, even of Canada, but the U S barely is on the map of undergoing some form of redress. But what's par not really paradoxical, maybe expected is because of, the Trump administration uh, and the sudden focus on the issue of race uh, and then with George Floyd on structural racism, 
that actually the paradox uh, in some sense, I guess, is that it's opened up a new, many more discussions um, of structural racism, which again, as I noted a couple of times, nobody, well, not nobody, very few people and sort of public popular domains. It wasn't really something that was on the radar that people were talking about in communities. But boy, during uh, the George Floyd protests, everyone, everyone was talking about it. And people still are talking about it, not as much anymore. Uh, and there are these different moves towards having local level, uh, you know, reparations initiatives. We just had Tulsa, uh, the 100th hundred year, year commemoration of the Tulsa massacre, uh, you know, so there, we used to just have a few transitional justice initiatives in the States. And now we have, I think maybe we can say dozens, uh, certainly more than a dozen. And depending on how you define it, a large number, we may not have a, a uh, one six commission. Maybe we still will. They're talking about it again, but that's really the tip of the iceberg. You know, the, the reckoning in the U S that needs to take place needs to stretch all the way back to the beginnings of the country. Uh, the educational debates in some sense could be looped into that as well, uh, because in many places, education about atrocities committed in the past uh, is viewed as a form of redress that enables society to move forward. And that goes back to your question about lessons of the past. Um, but we are uh, yeah, in a really interesting, maybe a somewhat hopeful moment. Uh, hopefully the energies won't fade away, uh, but we'll see. Uh, so I'm more, I'm certainly much more optimistic today than I was five years ago about the possibility of having a reckoning with the past that was largely obscured, erased, uh, and denied uh, by many people, uh, groups, uh, and political parties. Thanks, Alex, for that uh, that optimistic end note. <laughs> and I can definitely say that you know my conversations with my students have definitely changed over the the last five years for sure. Also. Um, and so I think that energy is still there, uh, at least among, uh, you know, the young people in this country today. Uh, Alex, thank you so much for your time. I really, really enjoyed our conversation and, uh, and I hope to have you back again. That would, that would be fantastic. You know, I, I forgot to mention one last little tidbit is actually originally I conceived of this book as having a lot of material about my testimony at the tribunal. That was the original and I've actually split it off. So I've actually finished a book uh, that will be coming out with Cornell University Press on my testimony that in a certain sense is the companion volume uh, of this book. That's, uh, do you know when about that's coming out? I know you mentioned uh, the co-authored book. Um, and is there anything else you're, you're working on? Do you have any time for anything else? <laughs> uh, Why well, I, I don't. These are all things come together in odd ways, uh, you know, like with projects. Um, I have an Oxford handbook of uh, transitional justice that's been in the work for years with uh, Lawrence Douglas and Jens Meyernreich. Uh, so that's going to be out later this year. Uh, that's going to be like a, I, don't know, I think they said 1500 page Oxford handbook. So it's going to be, you know, use it for your door as a door stopper if you need it or <laughs> pop it open and read a chapter. But that's, that's, uh, that's it. Then I'm, I'm going to take a break. That's, you deserve <laughs> it. Uh, well, thanks again, Alex. And uh, I'm sure we'll talk soon. Yeah. Thanks so much uh, for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Alex. Take care. Yeah, you too.